Elrod, the collective political world's hair was on fire yesterday because of a Monmouth poll that showed uh, Joe Biden trailing both uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, albeit by uh, a point point within the margin of error. Mm -hmm. But uh, this, this poll, I mean, you know, I just it was in it was it had an entire piece on it in The New York Times and it was all over the place. Yeah, it was. And, you know, Biden's team has been running on this whole um, electability argument pretty much since the beginning of his campaign when he got in. And so I think that because they've been leaning so heavily on his wide lead in all the polls, all of a sudden here comes a poll that shows that the race is tight. And in fact, that he's dropped a point um, under Elizabeth Warren. And suddenly, you know, all hell breaks loose and <laughs> the, wor- the world is coming to an end. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, well, they had, and it wasn't just Biden. There were other campaigns. Pete Buttigieg's campaign put some points out on it too. That sort of tried to um, question the the methodology of the poll. Um, and it is a little. It does seem to be a little an outlier if you look at the polls that came before and after. Uh, primarily an outlier for Joe Biden. Um, we'll see, but you know we've had. You know, it was really only 298 registered voters who are Democrats. Um, uh, out of a, a much lar- a larger sample. But, you know, we've had just since, you know, the over and that and it was pulled over the 16th through the 20th of August. There was an Emerson poll that was more recent, the 24th through the 26th, that had Biden at 31, Sanders 24, and Warren 15. And according to 538, and uh, Elrod and I are big fans of the 538 site. Yes, we are. And uh, there's a lot of great stuff on there. But they also grade the pollsters and the polling outfits based off of a historic, you know, the historical accuracy. So this Emerson College poll gets a B plus. Um, you know, there were two Harris X polls that were C pluses that had Biden in the 30s. And then Morning Consult, they do a, you know, they have an omnibus poll. They have a rolling poll that they're, you know, they've been in the field for a really long time. Mm-hmm. They're looking at, I mean, they've got 17,000 likely voters they look at versus, you know, most of these other ones are under a thousand. And they have uh, Biden uh, at 33. Uh, Monmouth graded out really well. They're an A plus polling outfit by 538. uh, But this poll is not necessarily an A plus. No, that's exactly right. The polling outfit is an A plus. This poll, that grade is not applied to this poll. The grades to for all of these polling outfits on 538 are applied to the polling outfit, not to the poll. So, um, but you know, look, you and I have been in camp, done campaigns for a long time and polling is, you know, oftentimes, you know, um, you know, there is, uh, polls are used and I'm not suggesting this is not necessarily how, you know, related to the Monmouth poll, but campaigns use polls for a lot of different reasons. They will go into the field and they will, uh, or committees will, co- you know, they'll, they'll do a poll and then they'll put it out. And let's say for example, you know, there's a candidate that the DSCC is trying to recruit. Mm-hmm. For example, John Hickenlooper, our friend. <laughs> right. They will sometimes, I, I'm not actually sure if they did this with Hickenlooper or not, but what they might do is they'll commission a poll and they will show and they will, and it'll be a head to head, Hickenlooper mm-hmm. versus Corey Gardner, mm-hmm. and they will get the results. And if Hickenlooper's doing really well, which I think he, you know, he is, and the polls, and I think the polls would, you know, they probably knew the polls would show that, they would take that poll and they would show it to John Hickenlooper and say, you got to run. 
right? I'm using that as an example, but that's oftentimes how committees use it to try to right. persuade people to run. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is also sometimes where uh, campaigns uh, will use it to show that um, that a poll that was done by their opponent was off. So, you know, Con- Congressman Smith polls, his poll shows him up five, and then his opponent, Congressman, you know, James will poll to combat that poll and to show that the race is even or maybe that he's ahead. Right, right. And that's why I think it's so, you know, I I sort of want to take this back to, you know, we talked about the purpose of polling, how you can use it in different ways. But I think we should take it back to the methodology because every methodology that polls use is different, right? And we have, we've had, we've been lucky enough to have a couple pollsters on here. We've had Jeff Pollack um, on here who's polling for Kirsten Gillibrand, but also has polled for a number of other candidates. Uh, Doug and I have both worked with him for a long time. John Anzalone has also been on this podcast before he officially um, teamed up with Joe Biden's campaign, but he is now um, Biden's pollster. So we've had some really talented pollsters on here. And one of the things that we've talked about is with each of them is how do you poll in this day and age when fewer people have landlines, more people have cell phones. Um, You've got to incorporate online polling to an extent, because even if you have a cell phone, a lot of people don't answer their cell phones. Um, And it's been interesting to sort of talk to people about how they're still tweaking ways to um, look at polling and figure out the right kind of methodology. Um, When it comes to the Monmouth survey that just came out, I mean, you know, I think the criticism is, is warranted from the Biden campaign because this is such a small sample size. And it seemed a little strange to me, although now that I've talked to a couple of folks um, today about this, I guess that this is somewhat standard. What Monmouth did in this poll is they surveyed 800 people. And of those 800, 298 declared that they were either Democrats or leaning toward voting in the Democratic primary. They either plan to vote in the Democratic primary or they are leaning toward voting in the Democratic primary. And that's the sample that they used to make these determinations. And I think you can argue that with that sample is probably why these results were a little bit different than compared to other polls that have larger samples that have, um, you know, different ways of, of, of measuring support out there. Um, I guess the big conclusion, Doug, from all of this is the Real Clear Politics average, which anybody can find on realclearpolitics.com. They basically take a polling average um, over a snapshot of time. And that is, to me, the the most the, the safest way to sort of determine where people are. And at that point, Joe Biden is still leading significantly over Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Um, I think the question that all of us are looking for now is – you know, given that we, I think, I think the Democratic, I think that just the political establishment overall is, is, is essentially determined, a majority, I should say, is determined that this is an outlier poll. But I think what we need to look at going forward is, is this a trend that is go- we're going to see more of? Like, as this is what we saw in this poll today. But is this the direction that the Democratic prim- primary is trending? Um, and you know, there is an argument to be made out there that if the economy goes into a recession, if Trump um, continues to create market instability and people are feeling it in their pocketbooks, they are less inclined to vote for him. And in turn, 
Democratic primary voters are more willing to take a risk on someone who um, is not your standard, you know, safe establishment candidate like Joe Biden. They might be willing to take more of a risk with somebody like Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, maybe even somebody else, maybe Mayor Pete, maybe Kamala Harris. So that to me is the more interesting thing here is how does Trump's recession or potential recession come into play? How does that affect the Democratic primary? And is this Monmouth poll something that we will see um, going forward? Is this is the race really tightening? Is this a trend that we're going to see? Or is this just a uh, blip in, you know, a blip in the grand scheme of things? And Joe Biden's really about, you know, still about 10 points ahead of his opponents. Yeah, no, I think it I think you're absolutely right in terms of the, you know, the most polls will show that the what the democratic what people within the democratic party care most about is beating trump and so that's driving uh their support for certain candidates people believe that joe biden is the most electable majority of voters right now believe that joe biden is the most electable democrat against trump some polls a lot of polls bear that out and so that benefits trump or benefits biden but to your point, if it shows that, you know, if we start seeing more of these polls, some of these Fox News, the Fox News poll mm-hmm. a week ago or two weeks ago, there were a number of Democrats that kept Trump under 40% in head-to-head matchups. Now, Biden performed the best of the Democrats, but there were a number of Democrats who ran, who um, matched up very well against Trump. And so that's just going to be something to see how it plays out, because if it, there's a sense that, look, you know, like we could nominate, doesn't really matter who we nominate, they're going to win. Then how does that impact uh, people's preferences in these polls uh, moving forward? Um, but um, look, it's still early. You know, uh, it's always good. You know, it's it. it I still I think it's it's great. To, I love having conversations about polls. I love talking to pollsters. It's a reminder we're, we're not even at Labor Day yet of 2019, so all this stuff, you know, likely won't matter uh, in a week or two. But it is important. I think this poll in and of itself and how it was how it's been covered though is a real reflection of where of the race in the sense that, you know, because this showed something that conventional wisdom was saying something different, it mm-hmm. became a big news story. And um, I don't even know though, if... Even though the margin of error is 6%, right? right? And, and, and there, this, been, there was like one point that separated Biden from um, from Warren and Sanders. Right. And I, you know, it, the question is, is, you know, will the, you know, will some of these major mainstream papers write about, you know, the, the, you know, the Harris X poll or the Emerson poll that show Biden where they, you know, where he, you know, where he has been. And they won't because it is, there's nothing new there, right? So the newness and uh, the uniqueness of this poll is, I think, what generated so much cover- coverage and so much, uh, <laughs> so much uh, attention. Um, well, but I, I do want to say this. I think there are two things that, you know, putting this poll aside, all the sort of taking into account the poll results. Um, but all the poll results that we've seen as of late, I think what we are trying, to, what we are starting to see, is the field number one is starting to gel. And yes, things could change, right? Um, Amy Klobuchar could have a really strong debate performance in the third debate, and you know, get up back into like the six to seven percent 
range, Kamala Harris could um, have a poor performance and go back down to the three four percent range. Although I don't think that will happen, I think she seems to be pretty solid at um, seven to eight percent percentage points nationally. Um, but the question does become, you know, is this what the field is going to look like going forward? Does this become a race between Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren? Yep. And at this point, it looks like it's starting to trend in that direction. I think there's always room for, you know, certainly new faces. It's very early, but then it's not early. Um, the Washington Post just did a survey that I think came out, or rather an analysis that came out this morning that showed where Hillary Clinton was at this point in 2016, where she was at this point in 2008, where Barack Obama was at this point in 2008, um, John McCain at this point in 2000, I guess 2007. Um, and, you know, it kind of is all over the place. I mean, Hillary Clinton was the clear um, front runner in 2000, at this point in 2000. 15, and she became the nominee. Um, Barack Obama in 2007 was not the clear front runner. In fact, he was significantly behind, and he became the nominee. Um, so it, it's, it's again, it's early. It's not early. But I think that we are starting to see this race come to a point where the field is naturally winning, winnowing um, by the choice of primary voters, not by the DNC, which we'll get to in a second. Um, and secondly, I just I don't know that I see a space for somebody who's right now polling at one to two percent. I don't know that I see a way for that person to become the nominee um, because I think you are starting to see those the, the race really come down to five to six people um, with, of course, the potential for that to change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, the other you know, another really good way to sort of I mean, you know, it's anecdotal, but I think it's important. I was in New Hampshire for a couple of days for a uh, candidate shoot. And, uh, you know, I got an opportunity to talk to a bunch of folks at this local Democratic Party picnic. And it's your uh, own focus group, my own focus group. Yes. So nothing scientific about this. But in the same way that it was really helpful to talk to those folks that we did down in Miami, Florida, who are from Wisconsin and Iowa, um, about the uh, uh, also Arizona, um, about the race and what they're hearing, you know, it was really helpful for me to kind of get a sense of what folks are hearing in New Hampshire. And, you know, one couple things that, you know, sort of that we've been hearing about these campaigns, first of all, one that uh, there was a tend to be tended to be there was a consensus that Elizabeth Warren had the best operation in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. That Cory Booker's operation was really good as well. Mm -hmm. um, I heard that surprisingly, um, Bernie Sanders' operation was a little it was just a little disorganized um but that surprised me and uh prox you know of course the proximity you know that's not to say he's doing you know he's doing all right in New Hampshire right now and you know I expect him to you know he won New Hampshire in in 2016 so you got to give him props for that but there just seems to be, I just keep hearing we keep hearing that you know Warren's got you know Warren's got a really good organization and so does Cory Booker and when you're thinking about what this field looks like today, and we're almost, you know, and then obviously after Labor Day, everyone likes to jump to conclusions about where the race is and everything like that. But I do think that writing off folks, and you're right to bring up Obama, but writing people off right now could be a mistake because you just don't know. A guy like Cory Booker, we've been looking at 
touting uh, in the sense that like he, there's just so much innate potential there that we think you know there it's just at some point you got to think he's going to catch fire. Kamala Harris, you know it. Don't sleep on them because especially Booker. He's got, you know, from what we're hearing, he's got a really good organization. No, he does. And I, look, I'm not suggesting that we no, write anyone are. off. I'm just saying that I don't think that I love Tim Ryan personally. He's a dear friend, but I don't think he's going to be our nominee. You know, I think at a mm-hmm. certain point, I think this field of, you know, maybe it's not fair to say five to six people. Maybe it's fair to say eight or so people. Um, that field is gelling. Um, which, by the way, brings me to our next topic, which is the debates. Yeah. Tomorrow, um, August 28th, is the deadline for candidates to qualify for the Midnight? third debate. You know, I'm not sure what exactly time what time. How much time know. do they have I don't to... know. I don't know. Like when the clock strikes midnight. Um, I'm not entirely sure. But right now, according to 538's um, tracking process, 10 candidates have qualified. Tom Steyer needs one more poll by midnight, when the clock strikes midnight, in order to qualify. Um, Is there any poll coming out tomorrow? That I, I think people are generally assuming that something's going to come out tomorrow and he's probably going to be pushed over the finish line. But right now there's 10 people. So if there's 10 people, that means there's one night instead of the two nights allotted on ABC News, all candidates will be on stage together. If there's 11 candidates who qualify, then there's going to be two nights. So here's who's qualified so far. Joe Biden, he's had 14 polls that put him in the – um, qualification standard. And again, everybody has to raise at least 130,000 unique donations. Um, so let's just assume, I mean, everybody that I'm, I'm about to announce has done that. Um, Mayor Pete has qualified. He has qualified with at least 14 polls. Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, all of them have qualified with 14 polls. Cory Booker has qualified with 11 polls. Um, and the following candidates have qualified, well, I'm sorry, no, Beto O'Rourke is qualified with nine polls, Amy Klobuchar with six polls, Julian Castro with five polls, and Andrew Yang with um, five as well. So we know that all the, all 10 of those candidates will be on the debate stage. That leaves Tom Steyer. He's qualified with three. He's got one more poll. Tulsi Gabbard, Marion Williamson, Kirsten Gillibrand have all just qualified with one poll so far. And then zero polls are Kirsten. I mean, I'm sorry, Michael Bennett, Steve Bullock, Bill De Blasio, John Delaney, Tim Ryan, and Joe Sestak. Yeah. I mean, can anybody explain to me why Joe Sestak is running? I just that makes no sense to me. But okay. So you know, I mean, these guys could all still qualify for the fourth debate because right. the timeline to qualify is the same. And the same criteria. And the same criteria. So you know, I think Gillibrand's team is hoping that she can. Um, you know, qualify with a few, few more polls, and I think that she's not too far away from the donor threshold. But these other guys, it's just going to be tough. Um, so, you know, I just want to address the criticism that the DNC has gotten for um, by some campaigns, by some pundits, by even some reporters to an extent for, you know, theoretically winnowing the field. Um, first of all, that's not happening because we are starting to see from poll after poll that does not have a lot of influence from the debates. But poll after poll is showing that a lot of people are coalescing around five or six candidates at this point. So the field is sort of naturally winnowing by default, which means those are the people who are raising the money. Those are the people who are able to build the ground game and the staff and all of that sort of a circular process that is resulting in decent polling numbers. Um, secondly, I mean, Doug, you know this. We both um, have been working in in communications for a long time. At a certain point, the networks are not going to air two 
primetime debates in a row. And they're never going to put more than 10 people on each stage. So at a certain point, you you can't go to a network and say, hey, listen, we've got 19 people that have qualified, so we need two nights in a row of primetime television. It's already tough for ABC because they've got, you know, football games. They've got, um, you know, of course, 9-11. You can't do anything on 9-11. They've got, you know, television shows. They've got all this programming that is – you brings in a lot of viewers during prime time. So they're not always able and willing to cancel that programming in order to accommodate a debate stage with people who are qualifying and polling at 1%. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I'm, you know, I go back and forth. Look, it, part of me thinks, look, you got to, you know, it, it's still early. And so, you know, and I get I get your arguments and I, I think I, I, I agree with them. But, you know, when you're looking at the, the field is – Look, right. If you look at the top of the field, you know you've got clearly Biden, Sanders, Warren in that top tier right now. Harris is right around, is sort of right on the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. But then after that, you know, like you got a bunch of people at three, two, three percent, two percent, two percent, one percent. I mean, and you know, you can say that maybe Buttigieg is in a little bit different, you know, kind of position than the rest, but. You've got a bunch of people who didn't qualify who are looking at other people who are at basically polling the same, you know, at the same level who are in. And so I can I can understand why there is some frustration. I think the other thing about, you know, the the criteria that that has been used is that it has forced these candidates to, I think, probably spend um their spend resources to generate donors sooner than they would have liked. And so we can, you know, like these were the rules at the end of the day. Look, these were the rules that were laid out that every campaign agreed upon. Laid and out seven months ago, by yep, the way. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, so I can argue, I can make this argument either way. These are the rules that were laid out months ago that everyone knew. Now, if you got in late, you knew what the rules were. Sure. So if you knew what the rules were and you knew you wanted to run for president, you should have got in earlier. Right. And so – Even if you weren't passing Medicare – Medicaid yeah, expansion. I, I, yeah, I mean, to- I mean look, I understand, I understand. Yeah, but like at the same time, you can still – you know, those were decisions, strategic decisions that these campaigns made. At the end of the day, look, I don't think it's the – I don't think it's a death knell if they're not in the campaign, not in the debate in September. It's certainly a, you know, a huge setback, huge. Um, But she can still make it in October. But these were the rules that everyone agreed to. And I just think like you can't change the rules after there was an agreement. There's a football game. It's 60 minutes. You don't change what you get for a touchdown after halftime. Correct. Six points, no matter what. You can't change the rules. And so um, – but look, I understand the frustration. I do think that there's not much of a difference between right now Booker and – I mean a- Andrew Yang and Booker both are in. There's not a huge difference between like them and you know some of the couple of the other people who didn't get in. Well, so. the other thing that I want to – two other points I want to make. Number one, there has been some complaining from certain candidates that it they're spending a lot of money, digital money, dig- on digital resources in order to raise – small dollar donations to qualify. Well, you know what? If you're spending $25 per $1 that's coming in the door so that you qualify for the debate threshold, you're probably not going to be the nominee. 
and you're certainly not going to beat Donald Trump. So, you know, at a certain point, look, Mayor Pete came into this with a very small infrastructure with little to no national name ID. He managed to raise a lot of money from individual donations, um, and he's in the game. He's he's in the fight. Um, somebody like Kirsten Gillibrand has notoriously been a very strong fundraiser. Um, I've known her for years. I worked with her. I was at the DCCC during the 2006 cycle when she was first elected, and she was one of our most prolific freshman members of her class that year. So she's always known how to raise money. I think probably what you're seeing now is it's just harder for her to raise small-dollar grassroots donations with such a crowded field, which to me is all the more reason why the field needs to be winnowed because that brings me, me to my second point. Running for president is grueling. It's not always right. It's not always fair. But we have got to beat Donald Trump, and we've got to make sure that the infrastructure and the process is in place so that whomever the nominee is has the best campaign apparatus that they can. The DNC is best equipped to support them in that nomination fight because there's so much at stake this cycle. And, you know, we just can't um, – I just don't think that we can sort of uh, goof around here much longer with a bunch of different candidates in the race just so that we don't hurt people's feelings. Yeah. I mean, people can I mean, stay in the race, but at a certain point, they're either going to have to lay off all their staff and, you know, and live on a – you know, operate on a shoestring budget, or they should probably follow John Hickenlooper's lead and Jay Inslee's lead and get out and – um, ultimately endorse somebody else or endorse the nominee. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think, you know, the question is, is, you know, if these, if the, these standards weren't set this time around and then in four years or eight years or whatever, and there's 40 people who run because they know half of them, more than half know that as long as my name's in there and I reach 1% in a poll, I can get, I can national get on national TV. TV mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think like at some point you got to I mean, you know, this isn't about any to, in my view, this isn't about any one of these candidates. In my view, this is about who is the best person to beat Donald Trump. And that's what this whole exercise should be about. And I think that at you know, having these benchmarks that people have to meet along the way is a good is is you know, look, it's not perfect. We know it's not a perfect system. This is the first time they've done it. It's like mm-hmm. the playoff system for college football. It's not perfect, but it's what we got right now. And I'm sure over the years, it's going to be something that we modify. You're going to see the same way that they may, they'll figure it out with the college football playoff. Maybe they'll expand it to eight people, eight teams. But it is what the, you know, the rules are. It's what the campaign's agreed to. And uh, you got to, I mean, you know, look, there's got to be a way to, to, to reward campaigns that are, performing, um, you know, performing very well. And you can't just reward and you have to encourage mediocrity. Them. Correct, correct. You've got to, and you've got to encourage them. And, you and know, I, I... is a great example, too. I mean, he Yeah, was, absolutely. And you can, you can argue that Cory Booker, um, you know, maybe not as much as Mayor Pete, but Cory Booker has managed to qualify for the debates and he's raising money from grassroots don- donors. And he ca- came into this with... More name ID than Mayor Pete, but not significantly more name ID. Um, same with Amy Klobuchar. I mean, she's really has put her head down and not complained and gotten the job done and qualified um, for the third debate. I think she qualified a couple weeks ago. So she's well ahead of, of the process. Um, you know, we, I think we have to look at the DNC as sort of the referee in the Democratic primary debate process. And 
again, it's not perfect, but ultimately, I think what they are doing, and I firmly believe that they are helping usher along this process, they are forcing candidates to think creatively, to raise money from a lot of different people, and that's only going to help us in 2020 when we actually have the nominee. Right. And by the way, really quickly, the kids' table debate. I mean, remember how embarrassed the, the Republican candidates were who were in the kids' table debate? Carly Fiorina, Mike Huckabee, Rick Santorum. Right. Um, I know I'm missing a few, but it was just embarrassing for them. They didn't make the big boy stage. They never really got to go head-to-head with Trump. And I think something else that we want to keep in mind here is we actually want to see these top-tier candidates in totality go head-to-head with each other. Yeah. You know, I want to see Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren on stage together. Yeah. But I would but you know that I I totally agree. My only my one problem with like the the um what I worry about is it's one night. It's still going to be the even if it's one night, it's still going to be 10 people on a debate stage. And that's I still don't think we get a lot out of that. You know, I would much ra- I would rather see two nights, five people on each stage. Mm-hmm. Then you're going to actually hear them have a chance to actually go into the issues, go, you know, um, uh, contrast with one another. There's going to just be more time for, you know, a back yeah, and forth. That's fair. I just think 10 people, uh, 10, it's no different than the, you know, it's just one night instead of two nights of 10 people. Mm-hmm. And I just think a 10 person debate, you just don't, there's not a lot you get out of it. It just ends up being like, you know, well, if Tom Steyer makes it, then you'll have five and six. So you'll get your wish. Yeah. Well, um, well, this is our last podcast before the Labor Day. Mm-hmm. So we've got uh, tomorrow. We'll, or in the, but when we come back, we will know who is on that debate stage. Correct. There'll probably be some more um, polls that come out. Mm-hmm. And uh, it will be the uh, typical time when people start taking, you know, looking really seriously at the race and, and start, you know, coming to some early uh, conclusions about where we are because everyone likes to do that right after Labor Day. So, Elrod, it's been fun doing this, just you and me. Yeah, it's I been like great. That. It's been great. It's always fun to have an expert on, but sometimes it's good just to <laughs> have you on chat dog. among the two of us. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so, uh, for my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod, this is Doug Thornell. This has been The Electables, and we will catch you next time. <laughs>